hello again, and I invite you to join me in your Bibles in Galatians uh, chapter 3 as we continue our series through Galatians. And today we will tackle the first 14 verses of this wonderful gospel-centered and, as we will find out today, cross-centered letter in the New Testament. So Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, reading down to verse 14. And if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to follow along with me as I read. The words should also be up here on the screen in case you don't have a copy of God's Word. But let's read it together. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, thank you so much for the, the opportunity and the, the privilege that I have to stand here and to, to preach your word, to feed your people. From your word. And so uh, I do want to pray for myself as I always do. Lord, and I pray that I, that I would stand here not trusting in any perceived ability of my own, but that I would trust completely in you and in your, uh, your ability and your power to work and even speak through a fallen and a broken sinner such as myself. Help me, Lord, to, to rightly divide your word here today and to rightly illustrate it and apply it to our lives so that I may feed your people, that they may be encouraged and edified through the preaching of your word today. And Father, I pray that we would all walk away from this time together 
fixing our eyes on the cross, the cross of Calvary, recognizing that it is there that we were justified. It is there that we find forgiveness of sin and the promise of everlasting life. And through our faith in you, Jesus, that we become full children of God. I pray all of these things in the wonderful and precious name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to begin our time together this morning by asking you to think of the most foolish thing you've ever done in your life. And while you're thinking about that, I'll tell on myself. I will share with you one of, hands down, top five, the most foolish things I've ever done in my life. Are you ready for it? Here it goes. This occurred back in 2015 when I was serving the very first church that I had the opportunity and the privilege to serve as a pastor in Wood, North Carolina. Wood is 20 miles from anywhere. It is so far away from the next town. There's no internet in Wood. At least there wasn't when we got there. So 20 miles to the nearest Walmart. But we were living in a parsonage, just like we are today, and it was February of 2015, and we had a, a snowstorm. And so it had snowed, and then a couple of days later, as is typical in North Carolina, maybe this happens in Missouri too, late February, there's the, the ground is completely covered with snow, but the sun is out and the temperature is rising into the 70s. And so if you've ever had a day like this, maybe you know what that snow was like, the, the texture of the snow. I, I think I can probably best describe it this way. It was like a, a Slurpee. It really was. It was slick as snot, if you will you know, forgive the expression. It was really, really slick. So anyway, on this particular occasion, one of our children, I believe it was Hadassah, she developed a really high fever. And so we were really concerned and we wanted to get her to the doctor. And so Alina said, I'll take her. I said, fine, that's great. And so they walk out the door and they go and they get in the car. Now the car is parked on the side of the road. There's no driveway here. It's, it's, the, the tires are about two feet off of the pavement. And the, the road had been plowed when it snowed a couple of days before. So there's, you know, there's piles of snow there. So Alina gets in the car. She puts Adassa in the car. And, and I watch from the front door of the parsonage as she tries for about five minutes to get the car out onto the road, but she just can't do it. She's not having any, any success at all. And so I'm a little stressed. I want to make sure that we get Hadassah to the doctor so we can figure out what, what's going on with her. So I walk out of the front door, and I walk up to the car, and I open the door, and I say to my wife, and I quote, let me show you how a man does it. <laughs> really? I really did say that, which is not my style. I don't typically say stuff like that. I have no idea what on earth possessed me to say that. And that's what I said. And so she got out of the car. Well, sure, please show me how a man does it. And I proceeded to show her how a man does it. And so I get in the car, and I knew that I had traction in reverse. And so I had this brilliant idea. I'm going to go in reverse. I'm going to make this circle. Now, again, remember, I'm starting like two feet from the pavement of the road. And so I'm going to make this circle. I'm going to circle through the yard and I'm going to go all the way in reverse and come out in, on the pavement. Yeah, it is, it is foolish, isn't it? It's my idea. It works brilliantly for half of the circle. You get halfway through the circle and they come to a complete stop. And at this point, I should have cut my losses. 
And I should have picked up the phone and called someone. <laughs> More on that in just a minute. And Alina at this point is like, you should stop and you should call someone. I said, no, I'm going to show you how a man does it. <laughs> at this point, I'm probably 30 feet now from the pavement. Now I start going forwards and backwards, forwards and backwards, forwards and backwards. And I end up getting farther and farther and farther away from the road. And I end up on this spot where it begins to slope down and go into this gully. And again, Alina's over here going, stop, stop, stop. Like, no, no, no. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get this car out on the road. I'm going to show you how a man does it. Determined. I go on down into the gully and finally come to a complete stop and just sink down into the mud. Get out of the car and I look. And I'm not lying, I'm more than 100 feet from the road, for sure. Maybe well past 100 feet from the road, okay? I get out, I'm like, oh my goodness, and the yard is all rutted up. This is the parsonage, it's the church. <laughs> it's all rutted up, it's horrible. And so I did what I should have done from the very beginning when I was two feet from the road. I picked up the phone and I called our chairman of the deacons, Mr. Benny Ray Gupton, who was 88 years old. He's a wonderful man of God, and uh, he's, a, he's a third generation farmer. He had the largest farm in that community. I, I pick up the phone and I call Benny. I said, Benny, um, can you come over and help me get my car out of the snow? I didn't, didn't give him any other you know, information other than that. Well, sure, Walter, I'll be glad to. And so he comes pulling up a few minutes later. I'll never forget, as long as I live, he pulls up in his truck and he rolls the window down and the look on his face and he says to me, he says, boy, <laughs> as only Benny Ray could say, boy, what have you done? I said, Benny, <laughs> Benny, it's a long, long story, but I just need your help right now. Can you help me? And, and he was gracious enough. He did. We, it required a tractor and, and a long chain, but we got that car out of the mud and back on the road, and that's it went to the doctor, and, and everything was okay. And don't worry about it. I've got a four-wheel drive now, okay? <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> learned my lesson that is like I said hands down one of the absolute foolish things most foolish things I've ever done in my life but as foolish as that is church and it's a true true story you can tell you ask Alina she'll tell you even more as foolish as that is my foolishness on that day does not come anywhere close to the level of foolishness that's going on in these churches in Galatia to whom the Apostle Paul is writing. Notice, if you will, in your Bibles in verse 1, Paul begins this section by saying, Oh, foolish Galatians. Obviously, this is not the way that you typically speak to people if you want to win friends and influence people. This is not the kind of language that we read about and learn about in leadership books today, okay? I think that's obvious. One commentator says that it's as if Paul begins this section with, Dear idiots! It's the force of what he's saying. Another commentator says, Oh, stupid ones. All right? So he's really, really laying it on them 
here because they, they are doing something really, really foolish. Now, before we get to that, I, I just want to say, I, I think Paul's use of this language is really, really instructive for us. He's not using this language to be a jerk. He's trying to jolt them. He's trying to, to awaken them, if you will. He's trying to get their attention. He goes on to say, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, whenever I read this section of Scripture and I come across that word bewitched, you know, you know what comes to my mind? Yes, it's that television show. The sitcom, I think from the 1960s, it was a little bit before my time, but I've seen reruns. I think it was Samantha Stevens, is, is that her name? She was the, the witch on Bewitched. And whenever she wanted to cast a spell on someone, you know what she would do? You're, you got it, right? I don't know if you meant to do that or not, but she would wiggle her nose. And she would cast a spell on someone or something. The Galatians, according to Paul here, are behaving in such a way that it's as if someone has cast a spell on them. And this spell, according to Paul, is preventing them from seeing what is most important and that which should be patently obvious to them, which is the significance of the cross. I talked about this last week, Galatians 2.20. There's a verse of Scripture that, that is full of power and voltage. That tells us how, can, how we can live to the glory of God. And that is by keeping our eyes focused on the cross of Calvary. And so somebody is casting a spell, according to Paul, over these Galatians and preventing them from, from really seeing and understanding the significance of the cross. Now one question is, who is it? Who has cast this spell? Well, this is a rhetorical question, and so on one level, the answer is obvious. It's the Judaizers. These are, just by way of reminder, these are the false teachers who we believe have come into these churches that Paul planted in Galatia, and they've come in, and they're, they're telling these Gentile Christians, hey, your faith in Jesus, is that's, that's a good thing, but it's really just a starting point, and you need to add to that uh, add to your faith in Jesus by circumcision and submitting to the law. So on one level, this is a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. It's the, the false gospel that these Judaizers are preaching. It's casting a spell on these people, preventing them from seeing the significance of the cross. However, church, Paul may also be implying someone even more sinister. The word who here in verse 1 is singular. It is not plural. And more than one commentator made the point that perhaps Paul is suggesting that behind the work of the Judaizers is someone more sinister, our old adversary, the devil himself. In my experience, when it comes to the devil, we tend to operate in one of two extremes. Modern people, not necessarily church people, but modern people, right? They're one of two extremes. On one extreme, there are those who just flat out deny the existence of the devil. He doesn't exist. That's just a fairy tale. Some people even maybe who were people of faith who would consider themselves Christians would say that. But then on the other extreme are people who see the devil behind every single bush and every problem in life. Oh, it's the devil's fault. I can't get along with my neighbor. It's the devil's fault. I have so many problems in my family. It's the devil's fault that my boss is a jerk. And so they're, they're, we tend to operate in one of these two extremes. Either we deny the devil's existence or, or we see him at work everywhere behind every bush. I don't think either one is very healthy. I think we need a balanced approach. So let's first of all recognize 
that the devil is real. Jesus confirmed his existence for us in John chapter 8, verse 44. There Jesus said, he, the devil, Satan, was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. He is the father of all lies. Somebody say amen. amen. That's true. He likes to lie. He likes to come and whisper in your ear and tell you specifically, don't look at the cross. Take your eyes somewhere else. So Jesus confirmed his existence. Let's also recognize part of what his game is. Peter says of the devil in 1 Peter 5, 8, this is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Peter says this, he, the devil, prances around like a roaring lion. That's what he says. Prances around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I don't remember where I picked up this illustration many years ago as a pastor, but I love it. It's one of my favorite illustrations of this verse. So let me paint a picture for you. If you keep your eyes on the cross of Calvary, if you keep your eyes focused on Jesus Christ and Him crucified, I am of the opinion that the devil cannot actually devour you that he cannot actually bite you. You know why that is? It's because it was on the cross of Calvary that Jesus knocked his teeth out. Somebody say amen. You remember that. Remember that always. And keep your eyes on the cross. This is why the devil, I think, wants you to fix your eyes somewhere else other than the cross. And this is also why, beloved, the content of our preaching, in my opinion, must be nothing less than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. God help me if I ever walk into this pulpit and preach to you an entire sermon and fail to mention to you Jesus Christ crucified on the cross of Calvary as a sacrifice for your sins and His resurrection from the dead. God help me if I ever do that. You know, the truth is, though, a lot of preaching today, you can go to a lot of churches and you can sit in sermons and you might never even hear the name Jesus, let alone anything about His death on the cross. May that never, ever be said of me. What we do here, beloved, is not child's play. This isn't a child's game. This isn't twiddly winks. There really is a cosmic battle I believe that is being waged every single time I stand behind this desk, but also in your daily life. When you go out there and you leave this place as well, the devil would have nothing more for you than for you to take your eyes off of the cross. And that is why I said last week, and I will say it again today, make sure that you preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Do not let a day go by in which you do not stop and ponder and think about the great truth of Jesus Christ crucified in your place on the cross of Calvary and resurrected from the dead. Now church, look at verse 1 very, very carefully. When you look there, you get the sense that when Paul first came to Galatia, planting these churches and preaching the gospel to these people, he writes verse 1 in such a way to suggest that his preaching was so vivid And it was so cross-centered that it was as if the Galatians had a front row seat to the crucifixion. You see that there in verse 1? And he is letting them know, he's reminding them that it was this message that he came preaching to them that they heard and they responded by faith and then they were saved or as we learned last week, they were justified. 
But now very obviously these Judaizers are coming into these churches and they're, they're making these people turn away from the significance of the cross and the salvation that comes with it. And Paul loves them enough. I told you when I came here to preach in the view of a call, I, I told you I would love you. And I told you that because I love you, that would also mean saying the hard things to you. And we see an example of that here with Paul. He loves these people. He loves them very dearly. He loves them so much, he's willing to call them idiots. I'll never call you an idiot. I've already proven that I'm the chief idiot of us all. All right? But he loves them enough to speak to them with harsh language, not because he's being a jerk, but he wants them to wake up and he wants them to reverse course. So now I would imagine he has their attention by calling them foolish or idiots. And now he's going to continue with a series of rhetorical questions in verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by, by hearing with faith? And the Spirit here, Paul introduces us to it uh, here in chapter 3. He's going to speak a lot about the Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. But he wants them to reflect on their experience. And so again, he's asking them a very basic question. One that they should be able to look back on their time of salvation and answer, hey, when I came to you and I preached the gospel to you, did you receive the Spirit then? Or did you receive the Spirit afterwards when these Judaizers came in and enticed you to submit to circumcision and the Old Testament law? The answer is obvious. They received the Spirit when they responded by faith to the preaching of the gospel. He goes on in verse 3, are you so foolish? Calls them fools again. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, let me give you the Walter Overman authorized translation of verse 3. Dear idiots, you started well. You received the Spirit by hearing and faith, but now you are trying to be, quote, perfected by the flesh. Now, I think this gives us a little added insight into perhaps what these Judaizers are teaching these Gentile Christians in Galatia. I think we can say that the Judaizers did not deny the cross itself. However, in their view, based on what Paul is saying here, in their view, belief in Christ was merely an entry point, if you will, into the Christian life. It wasn't the end point, right? It was just the, the beginning, or merely the beginning. There was a, a higher life, you could say, that could only be attained by circumcision. That, that's what they're telling these people to do, a cutting of the flesh. You see what Paul says there in verse 3. Are you now being perfected by the flesh? These guys are telling you, okay, that belief in the cross is only an entry point, and, and that to be perfected, to, to receive a full manifestation of the Spirit... You've got to be perfected by the flesh. You have to undergo circumcision and submit to the law. Let, let me give it this illustration. I think perhaps we can illustrate it this way. Imagine a house that has a, a front porch. Okay? And so the Judaizers would come in and they would say, all right, you've believed in Jesus. That's great. That's wonderful. But you're just kind of on the front porch which means you're, you're not really in the house. And if you're not really in the house, then you're not really a, a true child of God. If you want to be a true child of God, then you've got to be perfected by the flesh and you've got to undergo circumcision. It, it seems to be something like that that they are saying. Paul says this is absolutely foolishness. Circumcision and submission to the law, it has absolutely nothing to do with being a true child of God. You guys have received the Spirit by 
faith in Jesus Christ alone. Then he goes on, verse 4, and he says, Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. We're not exactly sure what Paul is referring to here, but we do know that when, when Paul first came to Galatia and he was preaching here and planting these churches, we know that, that Paul himself was violently persecuted by the non-believing Jews in the area. They, they did not like what he was preaching as Jesus as the Messiah, a crucified Messiah. They didn't like that. And so they, they tried to kill him. They, they stoned him and left him for dead in one of these towns of Galatia. And perhaps we can imagine that these Gentile Christians, that they likewise have been persecuted, perhaps, by these same Jews in this area. And if that is true, then we can imagine that perhaps the Judaizers have come in and they said, hey, listen, if you don't want to be beat anymore for your faith in Jesus, if you want these Jews to stop persecuting you, then just go ahead and submit to circumcision and submit to the law and they'll leave you alone. Look at what Paul says. He says, guys, if you do that, if you submit to the law and circumcision now, and you try to add that to your faith in Jesus Christ, then everything that you've endured up to now for your faith in Christ, it's going to be for no purpose. And he's going to issue them a very big warning in just a moment. But he's saying, don't do that. Don't turn away from faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. Verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, again, we're not exactly sure what Paul is referencing here, but we do know that when Paul came to Galatia and planted these churches and, and preached the gospel, that he performed many miracles. In fact, the people of Galatia actually thought he and Barnabas were gods. And he's like, no, no, no. But that was because of the, the miracles that he performed there. And, and so really, I think what Paul is saying is, hey, I came and I preached the gospel to you. And God confirmed the authenticity of my message through the miracles that I was performing among you. And then you received the Spirit. Did you receive the Spirit then, or did you receive it later <laughs> once you submitted to circumcision and the works of the law? The answer is obvious. They received the Spirit upon hearing the gospel and responding by faith. So, all of this should be convincing enough to these people. But Paul is not willing to let it rest here. Now he's going to appeal to a higher authority than just the experience of these Galatians. He's going to turn to Scripture. And the rest of this section, he's going to be appealing to many Old Testament texts. All right? So if you have a pen and you want to write them down, just be ready as I go. But he says in verse 6, and I want to back up and read verse 5 and 6 together. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now verse 6 is a direct quote from our Old Testament. It's Genesis 15 verse 6. Most of you are probably familiar with the story, but just by way of reminder... In Genesis chapter 15, God promised Abraham that he would have a son of his own and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. The only problem is at that time, Abraham and his wife Sarah are pretty doggone old. And they're well past the normal age of childbearing. And of course, Sarah was barren and had been her entire life. And so, humanly speaking, this promise is impossible. 
But incredibly, the Bible tells us that Abraham believed and it was counted righteousness to him. His faith was counted as righteousness. The word counted is a very important word in my opinion. As I understand it, it is an accounting term. So think of a ledger book. Does God have a divine ledger book? I am of the belief that he does. But think of a, a ledger book. And in a ledger book, you've got a, a debit column and you've got a, a credit column. And the sense here is that Abraham believed and righteousness was credited to his account. A foreign righteousness that was not of his own. And we'll talk more about that in just a few moments. But the point that Paul is making right here, right now, is that he was not credited with righteousness by works of the law. Because in Genesis chapter 15, the law is several hundred years in the future. Nor was he credited as righteous by circumcision. Circumcision is still two chapters in the future in the narrative of Genesis. So God did not count him righteous based on circumcision or works of the law. He reckoned him as a child of God because Abraham was a man of faith. That's the point that Paul is making. Then he says in verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So again, the Judaizers, we can imagine, taught that to be a true child of God, you needed to have Abraham as your father. By the way, I kind of agree with that statement. You remember the song. Churches used to sing this song. Maybe you remember it. Maybe you don't. Maybe you've never heard of it before. But you know the way it goes. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm. How'd I do? Was it, was it good? It's the last time I'll ever sing to you. You remember? Remember that song? I mean, there's truth in that song. Abraham being our father, our spiritual father, right? A man of faith. We were people of faith. Abraham was a person of faith. But for the Judaizers, they insisted that Abraham could only be your father if you were circumcised as Abraham was circumcised. Because from that point forward, circumcision in the Old Testament was the, the sign that you were a, a child of God. And to that argument, Paul says, no way. That, that's absolutely impossible. Abraham was counted righteous long before he was circumcised. So Paul says, let's go to Scripture. Now, verse 8, he again is going to appeal to Scripture. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Well, read that again. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. There it is, the man of faith. Now again, Paul appeals to Scripture, and he's merging together two Old Testament texts right here. Genesis 12, 3, which says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. And Genesis 18, 18, all nations will be blessed in him. Church, listen again very carefully to what Paul just said. As I understand it, maybe I am wrong, but this is my understanding. It was God's intention 
from the very beginning to bless the Gentiles, the nations, every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. God never intended to reserve salvation for only a select few. God chose the people of Israel ultimately to be a vessel to get the gospel to the ends of the earth so that it could come here to Kansas City, Missouri, so that you could hear the gospel and you could respond in faith and you too could be counted righteous and a child of God. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. The gospel is not God's plan B. It wasn't as if in 4 B.C. or whenever it was that God was up in heaven going, gee whiz, these guys have really just totally messed it up and so I'm going to have to do something new. Right? I'll go down to have, I'll go down there and I'll die for them. It wasn't as if the gospel was that. This was his intent all along. Paul later says in the book of Galatians, but when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, when the time came, when it was right, after God preached the gospel to Abraham, he knew when that time would be. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those from the law or under the law. And again, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So what God is doing with the gospel, it's not anything new. He, it's always been a matter of faith, whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile. So, now, He's going to continue, and now He's going to continue appealing to Scripture. But now I believe he's going to issue a very serious warning to the Galatians. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So here's what you need to know about this. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 27:26, which, oh, by the way, is from the law itself. And so the law says that if you do not obey the law perfectly, you will be cursed. So Paul is appealing to the law, and by doing this, really what he's doing is he's, he's firing a warning shot over their bow. You guys better be forewarned, okay? You think you can get there by observing the law. No, no you cannot. It's going to result in a curse. Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Now he's quoting one of the Old Testament prophets. I'm sure it's one of your favorite readings in all of Scripture. Habakkuk 2.4, right? We all read that all the time. But you'll just have to trust me. Habakkuk 2.4 says the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul just simply uses it to bolster his point. It's always been about faith. It's never been about the law. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So now he's quoting again from the law. This time Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. Now, stay with me for just a second. As I read it and as I understand it, some people would disagree. But many Jews, especially in Jesus' day, took this to mean, Leviticus 18, 5, took this to mean that if they lived by the law, if they, if they never broke it, so to speak, then they would have life life eternal. And, and I think we see this come to life in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You're familiar with that parable. But what you may not remember is what is it that caused Jesus to actually tell the parable? Well, a, a lawyer, an expert in the law comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, Jesus, what must I do 
to inherit life or eternal life. And Jesus turns it back around to him and says, well, you, dude, you're the expert in the law. Why don't you tell me? What, is, what does the law say? He probably didn't say dude, but you get the point. What does the law say? And, and the lawyer says, hey, love God and, and love your, your neighbor. And Jesus says, man, that is a fantastic answer. Because ultimately, one of the purposes of the law is to teach God's people how to love their neighbor and to love others. And Jesus says to him, very, very importantly, look, church, he says, you have answered correctly to this lawyer. Do this and you shall live. But immediately after he says this to the lawyer, the Bible tells us that the lawyer was seeking to justify himself. And he says, well, so just tell me, Jesus, who is my neighbor. Because in his view, there were some people, perhaps, who he could consider not to be his neighbor, and therefore there were some people in this world that he did not have to love. And Jesus, of course, goes on and he tells this parable to show this man that he thought he was keeping the law perfectly, but he was falling well, well short of the law. He thought he was a law keeper, but he really was a law breaker. Now here is the crux of what this means. I'm going to give you a quote from one of the commentaries that I'm reading along in this series from Dr. Timothy George. Speaking specifically of this verse, this is what he says. If someone were really able to fulfill the entire law, all 242 positive commands, all 365 prohibitions, then indeed such a person could stand at the judgment and demand his acquittal before God. The question is, where on earth can such a person be found? Is it you? Is it me? For those of you who were here last week, you know it's not me. And you should know that it's not you either. It's none of us. And at every turn, Jesus showed the lawyers and the Pharisees how they were, in fact, breakers of the law. So the question is, where can we find such a person? Don't you want to know? That's the question. Praise be to God, Paul gives us the answer to that question in the very next verse. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. There's the word redeemed. What a beautiful word that is. As I understand it, the, the biblical concept behind this word is that uh, a slave. Imagine for a moment that you're a slave. In biblical times. And your master takes you to the slave market where slaves can be bought and sold like cattle. Anything else. And so your master takes you to the slave market and he's going to sell you. And someone comes along filled with grace and mercy and says, you know what? I'll buy that slave right there. Is he going to buy that slave to keep him as his own slave? Or is he going to buy them to set him free? He purchased the slave to set him free. And when he does that, he pays a ransom or a redemption price. That's what the word means. And this word declares that we, beloved, have been bought with a price and we have been set free. Say it again, brother. Amen. The price that was paid was the precious blood of Jesus Christ who bled and died from a tree. Paul says that he redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. You see that there. 
Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. This also is a quote from the law. Numbers 25 verse 4. Now, in Numbers, this has absolutely nothing to do with crucifixion, just so you know, right, in the law, because crucifixion wasn't a thing when Numbers was written. But if you were a lawbreaker in Israel, and you broke a law that was deserving of death, a, a capital punishment case, then you would be killed, and then your body would be hung on a tree or a post of some kind. And it was, they did it that way to serve as a, a warning to anyone else. All right, you break the law, this is what's going to happen to you as well. Paul is saying that when Jesus was hung on the cross, a tree, that he became a, a curse for us, us being the lawbreakers. We're the ones who deserve to be cursed. We're the ones who deserve to be hung on a tree, not Jesus. He is the only one who could ever stand at the judgment and say before God, I deserve life in my own strength and my own power. I'm the only one who could ever get over the bar that you made so very high. He's the only one to ever walk the face of the earth who could say that. Is that what he said? No. The Bible declares that instead he hung in our place, your place and my place. He took the curse, the punishment that rightly belongs to us. And just as we saw with Abraham, beloved, this is so very beautiful. When we believe, when we trust in Jesus' death and resurrection, we too are counted righteous. The Bible declares in 2 Corinthians 5.21, my favorite verse of Scripture at this very moment, for our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Somebody say amen. amen. I said before, I think God has a divine ledger book. I think that's true. There's a debit column and there's a, a credit column. And before you come to faith in Jesus Christ, there's nothing but a big fat check mark in the debit column. That's what you have got. You have got a sin debt that you could never, ever pay on your own. But the good news is this. When you are willing to admit and confess your sin and trust and believe in Jesus Christ, His death on the cross and His resurrection from the grave, God does a wonderful transaction. He takes your sin and He places it on the account of His Son who knew no sin. And then He takes the perfect righteousness of His Son and He transfers that to your account so that when He sees your name in His divine ledger book, He sees you as He sees His perfect, wonderful Son, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. You're a child of God. Amen. Just like that. has nothing to do with circumcision has nothing to do with submitting to the law. It's all about faith in Jesus Christ. It's so simple, a caveman such as me could get it. So, obviously, the Galatians would be fools, according to Paul. They would be stupid, even, to submit to the law now. Because if they do so, they would have to obey it perfectly. And Paul says, good luck with that. And so he concludes in verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Uh, verse 14 takes us back to the house illustration, I think. 
Faith in Jesus' death and resurrection does not merely place you on the front porch. It places you in the house. It places you in the house as a full child of God. A son or a daughter, a beloved, full child of God. Let me close with this illustration. Maybe it's not a a perfect one-for-one correlation, but, but I think it helps, perhaps. You know the story of the prodigal son. We all know the story of the prodigal son. The, the young boy, the, the youngest son, good Jewish boy, takes his inheritance from the father who represents God, and he, he runs off to Gentile country, and he, he squanders his wealth with wild women and unclean food. He's down there with the food for pigs. You, you know the story, right? And so he basically leaves the house. Yeah, he does. Then he comes back, and he, he confesses his sin before his father. And, and the father, of course, you know, brings out his robe and his sandals and everything. And he, and he slaughters the fatted calf. And they throw a big party. And there's a big party going on because the son who was lost is now found. Hallelujah, you all, you all know the story. But maybe you forget how the story ends. The end of the story, the father and the older brother are outside of the house. There's a big party going on inside of the house. But the older brother, who represents the, these experts in the law, these Pharisees, he says, you know what? I've been slaving away with you for year after year after year. I've never disobeyed you. No, never, not once. I've not done what this guy's done. And he's angry. He's fit to be tied. But here's the picture I want you to see. The father is sitting there pleading with his older son. Come in the house. Come into the house, all right? Come into the house. All that I have is yours, son. Just come in to the house. And the story ends. We don't know what he chooses to do. But, but when I read that, I think he, at that moment, is not really a son of the father. And so the question is, church, where are you today, this very moment? Are you on the, the front porch Are you somewhere else or are you in the house as a full child of God through faith in Jesus Christ? Father, thank you so much for your great, wonderful grace. Thank you that you would. See fit even to make me your child, someone who's in the house, not because of anything that I've done, not because of any righteousness of my own, but because I recognize my unrighteousness and my unworthiness, and I turn to you in faith, your son, Jesus Christ. Help me to cherish that thought and that truth every single day for the rest of my life, May it transform me every day of my life. And may that also be the case for all who just heard this message today. May we keep our eyes on the cross. May we never divert our eyes to somewhere else. But may we look always and forever to the cross of Calvary and our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. These things I pray in his name. Amen. I invite you to stand, church. We're going to sing an invitational song. It's a time for you to respond. Maybe 
Maybe you've been a, a Christian for some years. Maybe, maybe you realize, you know what, I, I've been trying to do this in my own strength and relying on my own righteousness, my own law-keeping, whatever that is. Maybe you just understood, no, it's not. It's all about faith. All about faith in Jesus Christ. Or maybe you've never, ever once stepped out in faith and said, I want to believe, I want to trust, I want to make Jesus Christ the Lord and the Savior of my life. Whatever it is that's on your heart, I would encourage you to come.